What's up, everyone? This is Cortland from ndhackers.com, where I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses. My goal, as always, is to get a sense of what's going on behind the scenes, how they got to where they are today, and the lessons that we can learn from their experiences. Today, I'm talking to Amir Saliafendik. He's the founder of a company called Doist, which makes a popular task management app called Todoist. Thanks for joining me, Amir. Thanks. It's awesome to be here. It's really great to have you here. Uh, we've got a lot that we can talk about. First of all, Todoist is massive. It's one of the most popular task management apps that exists, which is no easy feat to build. And the company that you built to build Todoist is itself pretty interesting. I mean, it's completely remote, and you describe yourself as a remote-first workplace, so I would love to talk about that. And you also grew up in Bosnia, which is pretty cool because it proves that anybody from anywhere has a shot at starting something successful online. But maybe the best place for us to start is kind of on your origin story as a founder and as an entrepreneur. And generally, people fall into one of two buckets or somewhere in between. The first half is the people who know from a very young age that they want to be an entrepreneur, that they want to be a tech founder, and they're super driven from the start. And the other side of the spectrum is people who kind of just fall into it. So I'd love to hear your story and how you decided to become a founder. Well, uh, you know, my parents were entrepreneurs their whole life. And I actually, I hated having, uh, like, your own business. I always envied, like... Uh, other kids that have normal parents, you know, because they would kind of like get the like normal work days, they would get vacations. And for me, like it was like work a lot of the time with my parents. So, you know, I, I really uh, didn't imagine myself actually growing up and starting my own business. And like the same fate has happened to my brother. So I think it kind of runs in the family. But this said, like, I've never actually grew up imagining working for others either. So uh, like from the very early age, I kind of like had side projects. Like I think the first like gig I had was when I was 15. Uh, I sold like a, a website to the local library and I kind of earned enough to buy a, a MacBook back then. So I was like, uh, you know, already starting something there. Um, and then it just like during uh, high school and, and university, I even did like a lot more projects and, and kind of started to do that. And then I kind of had like some part-time jobs working for others, but I, I didn't really imagine myself doing that. When you were in high school or college, what would you have said to me if I could go back in time and ask you what you thought your career would look like 10 or 15 years later? I mean, what did you imagine your life being? I mean, I basically knew I would like do some kind of development. I, I really love like programming and, you know, creating stuff. Um, so, yeah, that basically, but like I never actually imagined myself to be like a, a owner of a business, a leader and stuff like that. Like, yeah, it didn't really like appeal that much to me at the beginning. Yeah. So that's basically like the, the, the start of, of it all. When was the first time it started? to really appeal to you and you thought, you know what, maybe instead of just doing like these projects as, as kind of a hobby that maybe I'm cut out to actually be a tech founder or to be a, an entrepreneur. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it wasn't like really a day where that happened. It kind of like happened gradually. I kind of like just get, got pulled into it. I'm actually unsure how much you know of my story, but like I started to do this as a side project like, uh, you know, I was 22 or something, 23 when I started it. And I basically started inside my dorm. And I basically wanted a task management app for myself. Uh, so there wasn't like a grand scheme of things like, oh, I'm going to start this startup, you know, and raise money or something like that. I just wanted to create something for myself. And then uh, once I did that and I actually built the product, I launched it. I got a bunch of users uh, using it. I kind of got like a very, very good offer to co-found another startup, which was a Plurk. Uh, and I'm not sure if you know Plurk, but at the time we kind of had competition with Twitter early on. Of course, like we got uh, very beaten up in the like European and Americans market, but we kind of like, grew a lot in like Asia Pacific. Honestly, I think a lot of people, I think more people follow that type of path where they don't have a super detailed plan or a strategy in the beginning for exactly how they're going to start a business. And they kind of just fall in it, into it because one thing leads to another. And I think the other thing that you did that's also super common is to build a product for yourself and then only months or years later realize that it has the potential to be a solid business. 
But it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like Todoist was doing actually very well in the beginning and that it had potential, but that you stopped to work on Plurk. So is that correct? And if so, why did you make that choice instead of continuing to work on your own thing? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the thing for me is like, I never actually saw the huge potential in Todoist early on. Like for me, it was just like a side project and even actually getting it validated. And like early on, I also created like a business model for it. So people would pay like $3 per month to get like reminders. I don't know. I got some people to pay for it. Uh, like not a lot, but I, I, you know, there was kind of like a business model and people were very passionate about this. But I could not really see like huge potential in it. So that's why, you know, like uh, when this social network came along and uh, I was kind of going to be a co-founder, like it was well-funded, you know, I could learn a ton doing this. So I was kind of like, okay, let me just do this. And I think like basically I maybe did it because I wanted to learn, uh, like become a better programmer, you know, uh, better product designer. And I think actually also it had helped me a ton do like this side gig of of doing that. But for today itself, like basically the whole project was like a side project for four years before I committed full time on it. Can you give me a sense of who these early Todoist customers were? I mean, who was paying you $3 a month to use this app? Were they just people that you met in your dorm at college or people that you met online? And also, how long were you working on Todoist before you decided to switch and work on Plurk? So basically, I think like initially I, I developed Todoist for like six months and released it and then got like a, like I had a very popular development blog, which a lot of people followed. So via that, I got like a lot of early users, maybe like a few hundred or something like that. And basically they spread it around and it was like featured on, on Life Hacker back then, which was pretty big blog. So basically like, you know, it, it grew very fast, but then like, I stopped like six months in uh, and then I went like full time on this uh, social network called Plurk. Uh, and then I worked on Plurk for like three or four years before I returned back to Todoist to work on it full time. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, in most other settings, doing this, what I did, like would basically have been like a death sentence, but it kind of worked out somehow. So let's talk a little bit about Plurk, because Plurk sounds like a very traditional tech startup, one where you might not care all that much about having a business model, but you've got investors and you're trying to grow as large as possible and you've got co-founders and the whole nine yards. How did you come to get involved in Plurk in the first place? Well, I got like a cold email from one of the other founders and he basically wanted me to go on board on this. So that's basically like... Yeah, it was via my blog that I got into contact with this. And like on this blog, I kind of like wrote a lot of stuff. So he kind of liked it. And uh, he wanted to have me as like a CTO of, of this uh, startup. That's cool that your, your blog seems to be like the channel from which you did everything early on. Because that's also how you got your first users for Todoist. Exactly. Like, I mean, you know, I was like a very active blogger. Like I blogged for many years. And uh, I kind of like built my own little uh, audience. <laughs> well, maybe that's like where the real story is, because I think a lot of people listening in have tried to launch things in the past. And I've been in the situation where I've been trying to build and launch something and I haven't found any success at all. And it feels like, you know, how do people get this momentum where they launch something and people care or where they get asked to become a co-founder of a promising company? And it really helps to build an audience. So let's shift gears for a little bit before we get into Plurk and talk about your blog and how you started blogging and, and how long it took you to get to the point where your blog was actually popular and it could help you do all these other things. I actually, like, I started very early because I started on the internet very early to create websites. And most of them were kind of like personal websites where, you know, you would join some GIFs and make some articles and, you know, do some random stuff. And then time went on. I kind of like built more and more of this. Uh, so in the end, like, I kind of had like my own personal space where, I would post stuff and I mean, a lot of it uh, was also like very embarrassing (laughs) because (laughs) I would like, uh, like, uh, it was like a personal blog and like it had programming. It had like, uh, you know, if, if was, if I had like a hangover, I would kind of like do some random, uh, posts and post (laughs) it. So 
I mean, it was just like, a, I mean, actually, there's like still an archive of it, but like, it's just like random stuff. And uh, yeah, I mean, it had a lot of, of followers, but I'm actually unsure. I think like uh, in his whole history, it had like over 1 million uniques. Wow. And so why did anyone even care about it if it was just you posting kind of like your personal stuff and about your hangovers and your interests? Because some of the posts were like very insightful. Like, uh, for instance, I did like a analysis of Redis, uh, not of Redis, of Reddit uh, algorithm, uh, because Reddit was kind of like open source, so you could go in and like analyze it. And uh, I did like a, a post and basically it was like very insightful. So it got shared. And uh, yeah, so like some of the posts were actually very good. And there was like a lot of random shit in between. Yeah. When you were writing all this stuff, were you kind of thinking about it strategically? Like, hey, you know, I'm writing this stuff and it's kind of fun, but I'm going to collect people's email addresses and make sure that I can use this as kind of a distribution channel later on. Or were you just writing and, and hoping things took off, but not really having a future strategy or plan for your blog? I mean, I didn't have a strategy at all. Like, it was not very strategic planning. Like, I didn't even have, like, a newsletter uh, I sent out. It was just, like, RSS feed. So this, <laughs> this is just a mirror straight from the heart. No plan, just writing. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And I'm actually also unsure why I did uh, this in the first place. I think, like, maybe it's just, like, fun. And, I mean, a lot of the posts I also did is, like, I went into a technology and I basically learned a bunch of it. And then I wrote down, like, what I learned. So it was kind of like also useful for myself. And how long had you been running your blog before you got to the point where you used it to help you with Todoist? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, uh, the thing is, like, I'm actually unsure when my personal side turned into a blog. But I kind of like always had a personal side that I just did random stuff on. Uh, so it, it is like many years, I, I think maybe at least three before I actually used it to promote Todoist. I think uh, it's funny because one of the things about being an entrepreneur is that, as you well know by this point in time, it takes a long time to get something off the ground. Even a blog where you can just start writing from day one, it takes a while to build up an audience. And it's kind of advantageous that you were just writing things without any particular strategy or goal in mind. You were just writing what you were interested in because I don't know if you would have been able to keep it up, keep it up for three years if you were trying to see results immediately. You know what I mean? If you were trying to do it for some extra purpose besides just being interested in it, you know, would you have, have kept writing regularly for years and years? I mean, that's a very good uh, point. I think like a lot of the stuff that you do, uh, like even the project that you pick should be something that you're like deeply passionate about and that you would actually do without like any kind of, you know, external motive uh, to do it. I mean, I think like the same thing happened like with Todoist, like Todoist was never really launched to be, you know, this major task management app that would just take over the world like it was just me trying to do something for myself and i think like if you look at other interesting stories i mean for instance the dropbox is a great example it's basically the same storyline so uh, i think like there's something very powerful to kind of like do stuff for yourself and uh yeah not be motivated by like external factors yeah i completely agree it just and it's funny because like when you do things for yourself it's not always obvious how it's going to turn into some sort of successful business. Like even though you were charging for Todoist pretty early, you didn't necessarily believe it was going to be successful. And even though your blog was getting traffic, you didn't necessarily have a plan for you know building an audience, et cetera. But you still did it because you liked both of those things, and they still ended up both being super helpful for you from a professional standpoint. So I think you know people who discount doing the things that they're interested in and say, "Oh yeah, I like that thing, but it can't turn into a real business." would often be surprised at how things work out down the road if you really put your, your focus into something that you like and do it at a high level for long enough. Exactly. And I think also like something that happens, you know, if you kind of like look at stuff in like a long-term perspective, let's say writing, you know, like if you do writing for five years and you're very consistent, like you will become pretty good at it after five years. If you do it for 10 years, you know, you will become even better. The problem I see, especially like, you know, uh, just are looking around like for the stories I know is that people kind of like want to get amazing results putting in like a few months in of work or like, you know, doing something for a bit and then expecting, you know, amazing results. Uh, 
at least for me, I always like try to look stuff at like a longer perspective and also do like long-term investments, uh, like both personal, but also like company wise. I think that's a smart way to go about it. And even though that can be discouraging for a lot of people to hear, the way that I look at it is that time is going to pass anyway. You know, if you want to start a company that's successful and you want to have it successful now, today, here, well, like that's probably unrealistic. But if you just work a job for the next three years, like that's still three years of working a job, three years that you could have been putting into building an audience or, or starting your blog or, or building your company. So the time's going to pass anyway. You might as well have a long-term outlook. But anyway, this has been a huge digression from the story. I was just very curious about your blog and what that was like. Let's get back into talking about how you got started working on Plurk. It sounds like your goal and your motivation really was to learn and pick up new skills as a developer and kind of have a real job. How did that work out exactly? Yeah, I mean, I think like we built, you know, one of the largest and fastest growing social networks in the world. Uh, so, and it's actually still ongoing. So like it's very big, especially like in Taiwan and Philippines and Indonesia. So, you know, and I learned a ton about this because uh, the problem with social networks is like the growth is usually like exponential. Uh, so this means that you need to scale very fast. And, uh, you know, like it was actually my first real development job. And I was like the CTO of this thing that was adding like, you know, tens of thousands of people per day and just like keeping up with that and like uh, handling all, the, all that pressure kind of like uh, taught me a, a ton of stuff. But it also taught me, no, I mean, I think also like it taught me what not to do and, uh, you know, what path not to follow. So, so for me, like, you know, uh, like, you know, not sleeping well and like uh, working like 80 hour weeks, like I was just very, very miserable. Like uh, I hated my life. And, you know, like on paper, I was like a multimillionaire, but like inside I was just like a shitty because there was like so much pressure and like there was no room for like, you know, relaxing or like uh, uh, reflecting. It was just like ongoing all the time. <laughs> Yeah, I've been in that position as well, uh, without the traffic, but with the 80-hour work weeks, and it's, uh, <laughs> it's pretty depressing. Uh, but I'm curious about the story of how you got Plurk to grow so humongous, because when you joined, how many people were at the company? Was it just you and the, the founder? I mean, uh, we were three people in the beginning, so basically, like, uh, like I was there from the start, and I built it uh, from, from the ground up. How exactly do you create one of like the fastest growing social networks from a small team of, of a few people? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, the thing with all of these things is that there's like so many variables and you can't really pinpoint it to like a specific thing. But I think like uh, with social networks, it's kind of like maybe timing, like being at the right place at the right time. So basically we started out like where when Twitter started out and we were also like a micro blogging platform. So the timing was very good. Uh, and then I think also like we had a very good uh, collection of people and we kind of like complemented each other skills very well. So we had like a, a very good designer and uh, a very good like a business person and maybe product person. And then I had like this technology skill set uh, and then we combined it into like something that, that's quite powerful. Another thing is also like Plurk was actually also a remote first company. So like uh one of the founders is like a Canadian Indian and he worked from Toronto. And another one is like a Chinese Malaysian. And uh, initially he also worked from Toronto, but then he, he relocated to Taiwan. And I was like in Denmark uh, doing this, this stuff. So like we also had like a very unique team with like very unique insights into the world, I think. Uh, yeah. Was it your goal from the beginning to start some sort of humongous social network when you guys first started working on Plurk? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was. Like one of the guys, uh, like one of the founders, he had already done something very successful and he was like only, already a very wealthy guy. So, you know, and it was basically his money we kind of burned in the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the plan was to build something uh, huge. And what kind of evolution did you go through as both a developer and a co-founder of this company? Because I imagine that by the end, when you have this massive social network and you have this complex app that you've worked for years to build, that you're probably a completely different person than you were at the beginning before you knew any of this stuff. 
so what are some of the steps that you went through and, and how did you grow? Uh, I'm actually unsure how many of your listeners are, are, are very technical, so I'm not going to go like very on tech, but I think like something that's very important, like if you know that you're actually going to build something that's significant, it's very hard to know this, but I kind of repeated this both with Todoist and, and Plurk is uh, we didn't think like things through properly. So I think like you kind of like need to think far into the future and see how things will evolve. Because I mean, in Plurk, like, we kind of like make, made a lot of decisions that were final bad. For instance, like the database in the beginning wasn't sharded. So the problem is, I'm not sure if you know what sharding is, but yeah. uh, basically it's like splitting data up into multiple databases. So in the beginning, we just had like this one database and it was like a huge database. And at some point, like it just couldn't grow anymore. Like we couldn't buy bigger hardware for it. Uh, so we had to split data up. If you have a fast moving, you know, a social network that adds like tens of thousands of people per day and you need to do like a sharding strategy and then you kind of like are very tired and you work a lot, like it's a very, very non-trivial thing to do. So I, I think like a better thing is that from the initial design to kind of like imagine, okay, we are going to grow a lot and then building a sharding strategy from the get-go. I mean, that's like one example. I mean, in, in Todoist, I can also give you another example. Is like uh, the whole uh, first app was just built for the web. There was like no API. And I didn't like even imagine, yeah, I kind of thought a bit about it, but then like, okay, like this is just like a personal project. Uh, but then like later on, you know, building an API for Todoist was like a huge challenge because everything was kind of just like built for the web and like built for like page views, like not really uh, a RESTful API. And I think like you pay a lot of, um, like you can move fast in the beginning, but then later on you pay like a huge price for doing these shortcuts. And of course, I, I think like premature optimization is a huge issue. So basically you should be very careful of not doing this, but like for some things, you should like really think things through before you commit to them. Yeah, it's such a hard tightrope to walk because I remember starting startups back in 2008 and 2009 and just trying to find like wherever I could online uh, just guides and documentation to how to shard a database and how to deal with runaway growth because back then everybody wanted to build a massive social app. <laughs> it's funny looking back on it how much time I spent thinking about how to scale up to a company size that would be that big and I yet never built anything <laughs> that ever got that many users so I was basically wasting my time. Yeah, that's basically like the, the worst thing about premature optimization. But I think like for some things, it's very important. And I think actually what's more important is maybe product decisions, especially like maybe on the model level or just like the core product level. Because uh, once you get like a critical mass of users, it's incredibly hard to change stuff. And it's very, very costly, like both in terms of just like alienating your, your users, but also like in terms of changing stuff, like changing models, changing the API, changing the design. Uh, yeah, I wish at least like if I could go back uh, in time, you know, uh, I would actually have done something differently in Todoist to kind of like, uh, it would have made stuff much easier later on. But of course, like when you do this, uh, and especially for me, it was a side project. I didn't really think much about stuff and maybe that's why it moves so fast. So, you know, it's maybe like a, like a uh, you know, balance act. Yeah, it's a trade-off for sure. And, you know, like you said, maybe if you'd spent all your time in the beginning worrying about how to scale and grow, you would never have built such a successful product to begin with. You just wouldn't have had the bandwidth. But I'm really interested in, in hearing about why you went from having this gigantic social network that's, that's doing well, how you decided to quit that and go back to working on Todoist which is just this tiny you know, to-do list app that you'd built as a college student in your dorm room. How did you make that decision and why? The thing is like after doing Plurk for like three years, I was like very burned out. And basically like, um, I mean, we both had like offers of selling the company. Uh, we were closing like VC deals and stuff like that. Uh, but the thing is like, I kind of like just got, like very uh, burned out by the whole social networking uh, market. I mean, the thing is like, 
I'm not a very social person and like it didn't like it's not something I wake up in the morning and say, Oh my god, I want to make, you know, the world a bit more social. Um I was like more I want to make the world a bit more productive and I kinda of want to uh, find ways to like empower people and then like find ways of how to optimize to waste their time because if you look at all of these social networks and even right now like with with Facebook and, and uh, others like their optimization strategy is basically you know wasting as much time as possible yeah because that's the business model it's like ad ad based you know attention getting your attention so I mean I, I, that was basically the reason is like. I didn't really want to be part of this market anymore. And then I kind of like randomly, uh, like one day, uh, like I saw on Hagen News a post about Startup Chile and I applied there and I, I actually forgot everything about applying. So like a month or two after I got accepted and I was like, holy crap, like I'm going to Chile and I didn't know anything about Chile. Yeah, so basically I got into this uh, program and I went to Chile and then I kind of applied with another project called Widuist, which was basically a project management tool similar to Basecamp. Uh, so I didn't even apply with Todoist. Uh, but after doing like this new tool for like six months, uh, I was kind of like, why not just go back and work on Todoist because it already has like a bunch of users it already has a business model that kind of works. Uh, and that's when I decided to actually go back and, and work on it full time. So back in those days, there weren't very many companies, especially tech companies, that were putting products online and just charging money for them. I mean, that wasn't a very fashionable thing to do, to build a product management tool. Who was inspiring you? And, and besides just not wanting to be just another Silicon Valley company that's soaking up everybody's attention, uh, why did you think this was a path that was worth following? I didn't really think much about it. The thing is, like, I didn't want to pay for the server costs. So the business model was actually basically like, I don't want to pay for the server costs. So let me just like build something that I can charge for. <laughs> <laughs> so there was like, and I did like basically zero, like analysis of like pricing or like test of pricing. I just like said, okay, what is kind of like fair to do? And, you know, that's basically what I charge. And actually the funny thing is like, you know, Todoist was one of the first in this market and a lot of the others have kind of like followed our pricing strategy, which is kind of like nuts because, you know, it's kind of like based on nothing. <laughs> like it's a funny thing about copying competitors, you know, you have no idea, you're like, oh, it seems to be working for them. But when you look at how the sausage is made, it's like they have no idea what they're doing either. <laughs> exactly. So like, yeah, I was like very ignorant about this. So I could probably have made like a bigger business if I actually had done some pricing analysis in the beginning. Well, let me ask, what do you think was more valuable? Like if you could only have one, would you pick the development and programming knowledge and skills that you gained while working on Plurk? Or would you pick kind of the softer skills you may have learned about marketing and fundraising and product design while working on Plurk? Which one helped you more to doist? I would definitely say that the later, uh, like, you know, getting a sense of design. And I mean, Plurk didn't have like a very pretty design, but it's just like product you know, it's not really how it looks, but like how it works and how to actually create an engaging experience, uh, how to track stuff, analytics. Uh, I mean, I was actually a very good programmer before I joined Plurk. I got a lot better, but like it, it wasn't really the, the core advantage I, I learned. It was basically like the, the other stuff that is part uh, of like building great products. And it makes a lot of sense too to be a founder after that because I think when you're an early employee at a company or a founder, what you really need to do is have a super well-balanced skill set because you're going to be doing everything. Your job is really 10 jobs. And so if you're super good at programming, but you don't know anything about marketing or you don't know anything about how to build a product, then your company is probably going to fail unless you learn that stuff super quick. So it makes a lot of sense that you choose the skill set that kind of made you more well-rounded as a founder. Uh, I fully agree with that, Cordland. And I think uh, something that a lot of people, uh, especially developers, they do is they kind of like just focus on one thing, like, you know, becoming a good developer. And then they forget about everything else. But like building, you know, a successful product or like a successful business requires a lot of, you know, uh, knowledge about a lot of stuff like marketing, sales, design, you know, even customer support, uh, 
like leadership. I mean, there's like a shit ton of stuff that you kind of like need to be good at if you kind of want to be a founder. And even right now, like I spent a ton of my time of actually just learning stuff. So like the, you know, learning stuff does not never stop. Like it just keeps going on. Like, yeah. I think one big thing that holds a lot of people back is that they're afraid of learning something new. They're afraid that they won't be able to learn it. Has there ever been a time where you've been in this situation and you're afraid of learning something or afraid of taking an approach because you don't know very much about it? I wouldn't say so, but I think like something that, that was kind of like unnatural for me was basically the whole like um, becoming a leader and like leadership. Like we are right now like 53, 53 people. So it's kind of like I need to brush out these skills and it's not something that has really interested me much in the past. So I wouldn't say I, I was afraid. It was just not very something that I kind of like was very passionate about or like something I really wanted to do. But the thing is, like, you kind of find out that in order, you know, to build uh, something even greater, you kind of, like, need to work with people and, like, get a bunch of people together and work towards a goal. Because, you know, at some point, like, being just one person or a few persons isn't enough. So I was kind of, like, forced into this other role. Yeah, I think it's interesting to hear about how people approach these situations where there's something that you're not good at or something that you're not interested in, and yet you... It's kind of the biggest obstacle in your way, so you don't have a choice but to face it or to quit. What has your management style been, and how has it evolved as you've grown to this company that now has dozens and dozens of employees? Yeah, I mean, I think like it's very hard for me to say what my leadership style is, but generally, like I have a like huge trust in people. So, for instance, like we don't really track people inside a company. You know, we don't have work hours. The, the stuff that we do is basically like people doing like an amazing job, like delivering stuff, but like how you actually do it and, and when you do it, like we don't really care much about that. But also like just a, a lot of other stuff, like just maybe trusting also the, the goodness in people. I think like uh, trust is like a huge issue uh, across the world. Uh, and I grew up in Denmark. So like, uh, I think also I brought a lot of like Scandinavian values into the, in, into this that kind of like has shaped the, the company. Yeah, it almost sounds like you guys have it all figured out at this point. Uh, was there a time where you felt like your management style was just off and that you guys were running things a little bit wrong or maybe that the company suffered because of your inexperience with management? I mean, the thing is like, you never really, uh, like we have not figured stuff out. Like, And the problem with, with starting a company uh, and growing it is that uh, you kind of like need to change everything once you hit uh, certain milestones. So like in the beginning, you know, you're a few uh, people or like you're just maybe yourself doing something and that kind of works. Then you maybe, uh, you know, bring some other people. You probably need to change some stuff when you do that. But then like maybe you hit 10 people, 20 people, you know, 30, 50. And on each of these things, you kind of like need to reimagine everything and like restructure everything. And it's basically like, you know, taking stuff apart and even like yourself, like my role has changed significantly, you know, since the beginning. So give me an example of some of these things that you've changed or maybe a, a point at which things were too painful to keep doing it the same way you were doing it before. I mean, right now, like we are kind of like trying to synchronize, you know, the work of 50 people and we kind of like have tried many different systems and we like, so that's like a huge challenge right now, at least. And the, the problem with, with these things is there's like no handbooks. Like you can read about how others are doing it. So for instance, like we tried to follow Google's OKRs, but like it didn't work for, for us at all. So then we kind of like tried another system and stuff like that. So that's like on the company level and on the personal level, I think like, uh, for instance, like one-on-one, like providing people radical candor, like uh, radical feedback. Like that's something that I had to improve and we had to improve like collectively because in the beginning, you know, we, we knew each other very well. So like you didn't really need to think that much about like being candid and uh, providing this critical feedback and advancing people forward and stuff like that. But right now, like it's, it's, a, it's a huge part of, of my job. Yeah. And it's challenging because you have to do all of this stuff to run your company and make sure that everybody's effective and communicating well and successful, but at the same time, 
you actually want like your product to be good, right? You want your marketing to go well, and you actually have this challenge of building this product in this competitive marketplace because, let's face it, there's a lot of to-do list apps out there. I mean, you guys have a ridiculous amount of competition. So I'm really curious about how the early days went too. Like, How did you get to the point where this to-do list app that no one had really ever heard of became such a massive company and in such a popular application today? A lot of the stuff is maybe ignorance. Uh, so for me, I was like very ignorant about the competition uh, because, you know, it was a side project. So I didn't really care about the others. Also, like just being like a beginner and not really caring that much is maybe helpful because I think like if you just if I did some market research, I would probably never have started to do it. <laughs> was Tadeus growing while you were working at Plurk or was it kind of just steady and stable? I mean, uh, the thing is, like I didn't even have like proper analytics. So basically, like a few months uh, would pass, and I would just like do a query on like MySQL to see how many signups there were. But like I didn't have any idea of like how many users were actually act- actively using the product. That's hilarious. When did you start getting serious, uh, and, and how did you pivot from this product management tool that you started to going back to Todoist? The thing is, like when I once I returned back to Todoist, I had like learned a ton of stuff. Uh, So for instance, like analytics, like analytics are very useful (laughs) and they can kind of like uh, guide you and, you know, show you how healthy stuff is. So I kind of added that and that gave me insights. And then also just like optimizing, you know, landing pages, optimizing CEO, you know, optimizing uh, like uh, flows. So like uh, the funnel, the whole thing. uh, I mean, those were very, very useful. Like before, that I didn't like really know anything about it. So I didn't really do that uh, things. And I think like one of the uh, major things uh, was like the CEO element because that brought in like customers every day that kind of just search via Google to find like this task management app. Um, so that, that's one, one thing. And uh, the second question is like, how did I figure out that I kind of like wanted to kill this project management app and go back to this is that I did this project management app in like 2010 or 11, and uh, we built it for like desktop first. And I could see that mobile was like very, very, very important. And there's like no way in hell we could actually take this desktop application and turn it into a good mobile app. So I was kind of like, what I what I'm going to do like right now? Should I just start from scratch or not? And then like to do this. Uh, like I could actually see a very easy way of turning to do this into a mobile app. So that's basically, I think, maybe some of the motivation behind doing this. That's such a funny reason to switch and get back into Todoist. And it's actually a great reason because it just means that you were paying attention to the market forces and you wanted to be riding a wave that was going up instead of down, which is a surprisingly simple thing to get wrong. And it really worked out for you. You know, I've been following Todoist for years now. I've started my own fair share of to-do list apps, just like every other developer. And I looked at what you guys have been doing, and one of your big, big strategies seems to have been being available on like every single platform. So you guys are like Todoist for iPhones, Todoist for iPads, Todoist for uh, Safari, Todoist for Chrome, Todoist for the web, Todoist for like whatever. You guys have like a million different versions of Todoist. How early on was that part of your strategy, and how did that factor into you guys, you know, achieving such massive growth? I mean, it was actually very early part of the strategy because I kind of like wanted to have a tool that was with me everywhere. So it was, again, like my own use case, like, you know, this having to do this everywhere wasn't like some kind of insight I had. It's just like I wanted to have this because if you don't have your task anywhere you go, then it's kind of like not super useful. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So we've talked about the challenge of learning how to be a manager and how to grow a team and grow with your team. We talked about some of the more technical challenges of putting together a high-growth startup where the decisions you make early on don't really stand the test of time and you end up having to rewrite a lot of code. Are there any other challenges you can think of that were really tough to overcome with Todoist? Uh, I think like something that really opened my eyes. Uh, I mean, I have like always been like a, a lone wolf uh, kind of developer. But I kind of like figured out that in order to actually achieve amazing things, you need to have a very strong team that kind of complement each other. 
So I would definitely say that it took me some time to actually figure this out because I thought like I could basically do stuff on my own. And, you know, this worked at some point, but like if you really want to push the envelope forward and like do amazing stuff, it's basically like teamwork. Like there's very little one person or like a few person uh, shows around. Is this a realization that you had when you were just working by yourself or was it something that occurred to you after you had made your first few hires? I'm actually unsure. I think like it came very late into this. So like in the beginning, actually like my whole plan was to kind of like create a product that generated about $30,000 per, per month. And then I would, you know, be set for life if I could do that. So that was like my initial uh, vision. But the problem is like when, once I started to do this, like the money element wasn't really a huge motivator. It was basically to do better stuff. And like, for instance, like I know a bit about design, but like I'm not the designer. So like hiring a great designer was like a huge priority. And, you know, finding somebody to kind of like make this amazing or look amazing and feel amazing uh, was very important. I like what you said about about your plan to be, to make $30,000 a month so that you'll be set for life, which... Honestly, I think people don't talk enough about their monetary goals because it, it really plays into why a lot of people start businesses. I mean, it's an extremely difficult thing to do. It's very risky. You know, it's much easier to get a normal job. And so uh, there's a lot of feel-good stuff about starting a business and making your own projects, but it's usually not worth it in the end if you don't have some sort of financial security built into it. So can you elaborate a little bit more on what your goals were financially and, and how long it took you to get to the point where Todoist was paying for your rent and paying for your your lifestyle? I think it didn't really take a long time uh, for it to pay my salary. I think maybe like uh, five months or something like that. And then I could kind of like live very comfortably about, uh, with, with uh, the money I was making. Uh, but the problem is like, I kind of like uh, took another pet and just started to hire people. <laughs> so like, I never really had like a, <laughs> a you know, like a, a huge cushion I mean, the thing about this is like, I kind of like wanted to create something that kind of like could generate some passive income. So I could kind of like do my own stuff, do side projects, you know, write uh, on my blog or whatever else I wanted to do. But like, as I began to kind of dwell into this, I kind of figured out that, you know, it was much more fun to actually just build products, build a company and, you know, be like build something that you're proud of and not really focus that much on the money aspect. Yeah, I mean, once you dive in and there are actually people who are using and depending on what you've made, it's difficult to just walk away from that. I mean, you've got people saying, hey, you know, can you add this feature? Or can you improve this design? And you're using it yourself, too. And you're thinking the same things that your customers are thinking. And so I think that's why it's so rare for people to say, well, I'm done with this, and to just throw their hands up and walk away. You know, as alluring as passive income is, that's just not something that, that happens very often. Yeah, I mean, I think like it can uh, work for some people, but like I would personally get very, very bored because it's kind of fun to just have something that's growing, that's changing, uh, that kind of like changes you, that you know you can learn stuff with, uh, than just to have like something that kind of like creates this passive income. So nowadays, you guys have, I think you said like fifty something employees. I'm sure you have millions of users, and your revenue is probably looking great to be able to afford all those employees. How have your goals changed and how do you look at the future in terms of what you want to accomplish personally? Initially, you know, when you start something, uh, you kind of like, I mean, for my, my story is basically I started something to create something for myself and then you kind of want to create this better. But then at some point, like your ambition level kind of rises. So suddenly, like right now, like my motivation is that we are going to, you know, create something that's like going to have like a global impact. So really want to, you know, build something that kind of like can help the world. Uh, and I mean, yeah, we have like three different things that we're kind of like working on. Like one is to do it itself. The other is like the whole remote first philosophy and like building, you know, a strong remote first company and showing that you can actually build something that spreads around the world and uh, that has like all kinds of cultures and people in it. And you can still like outcompete you know, Silicon Valley companies or whoever else uh, you are competing with. And the third thing is basically like team communication, like 
uh, right now, you know, there's like a huge attack on our attention and we kind of like want to make more mindful products and especially like uh, team-based stuff. And uh, yeah, so, you know, we are like huge enemies of Slack and like, uh, <laughs> you know, real-time aspects <laughs> and just like products that kind of just waste your time. It's got to be hard as a, a remote first company to be anti-Slack. Because it's one of the tools, I think, that helps people who have distributed teams to be able to stay in touch. What do you guys, what's your alternative? Well, we have, uh, we have our own tool. It's called Twist. And it's basically asynchronous communication. Uh, and we have actually, like, we use Slack for two years. But it does not really work greatly for remote companies. Uh, and the problem is, like, really the real-time aspect of it and, like, the one-line aspect on it. So, like, if you have very different time zones, like you kind of like need to have asynchronous communication where people can leave comments and you know go do something or like go sleep and then come back and respond again. So Slack is kind of like I think a lot of remote companies kind of using it right now, but like it's just a horrible tool for for remote companies. Yeah, I I, I don't really understand how people are still using it, but you know <laughs> that's our our fight and we will see how it goes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's a really great point that if people are in different time zones, it's kind of crappy to have like these chat-based communications where the second someone talks about something, it scrolls up, and by the time you wake up on the other side of the world, that conversation's already gone, and you've missed it, and you're not going to reread the entire log to catch up. Exactly, and worse, like, you can't even like reset back the conversation because that would probably like be rude or whatever. So like, you know, very important decisions can be made, and this creates like this funnel where you basically need to be connected all the time. I mean, we are very happy that we kind of like created our own thing and uh, we're kind of like working on it right now. So we will see. Well, I think what you guys are doing is the future and it's pretty cool to see how early you got into building a remote first company because you were saying that Plurk was also remote first and that was back in like 2008, 2009 when it wasn't very common to start a company that way and there weren't very many tools to supplement that lifestyle, but it's certainly the future and I'm looking forward to seeing more companies start the way that you guys have and continue to kind of build these businesses and products without anyone having to be located in one specific spot because it's just so limiting and it's just it's not as fun to be honest as, as being able to be remote i mean i fully agree with this Coldland, and something i can actually recommend for people that are starting out is like relocating to somewhere cheap because like there's huge amounts of difference you know uh in in, in prices that you pay so for instance like once today wasn't really big. Like I lived in, in Porto, in Portugal for a few years. And, you know, we saved like a ton of, of money doing that. Uh, I mean, for instance, like if you compare a Porto, like rent compared to like big cities in Europe, it's probably like four times less or something like that. So you can save like a huge amounts of money. So like, why would you be actually New York or like San Francisco when you could be somewhere else and, and you know, save a lot of money and like kind of, do your own thing. And I understand like all of these like network effects and like being part of a community. But I think like on the internet, you can actually learn stuff and you don't really need to be part of a hub to actually uh, do stuff. Yeah. Or you can be part of an online community. But I, I really feel you about the, the pricing because I started ND Hackers in San Francisco and it's like paying thousands of dollars a month just for rent compared to you know somebody living in Bali, which is like the other extreme where it's like $500 a month for groceries, rent, internet, cell phone, transportation, all put together. You're just more, much more likely to build a successful company. But anyway, we're running toward the end of our hour. And so to finish things off, uh, a lot of people listening in are people who haven't started a company yet, are people who are at the very early stages and are maybe you know, blocked by some difficult challenge What's your one tip that you would give to somebody listening in who's very early on for how they can succeed and, and keep going? Yeah, I mean, what I would actually recommend is uh, think long-term and optimize for the long-term. Like, I really hate these uh, tips that kind of tell you, like, you know, quit your job and work on this for three months and see how it goes. Because I don't really think, like, you can build anything, especially in the current climate, in three months. Like, you must be able to like think much longer and like invest for much longer than that. And if you see like my story, like my story is basically like how we succeeded in like 10 years. It's not like how we succeeded, you know, in a night or whatever. Like it's basically 10 years of hard work. And of course, like it's 
sounds a bit uh, depressive, maybe, or like a lot of work. But I also don't really think like there's any shortcuts you can really make. Uh, and I mean, one of the articles that I can really recommend is uh, Peter Norwick, uh, who is like the, I think, uh, the head of, of Google Research. Like he has a article called uh, Teach Yourself Programming in 10 Years. And it's not really about programming, but it's like it's learning anything. Like you can't really just pick up a book and learn something, you know, in a few hours or a few days. Like you must actually be willing to invest like 10 years on something. So that would be my tip. That's great advice. And I, I wish people said that more often because it's so easy to only focus on the articles and the interviews and the, the stories you hear about somebody succeeding after a month. But the vast majority of the time, that's not the case. And even people who do succeed after like a month or two, that's because of the work that they put in for years and years before that. So I think that's a great note to end the episode on. Can you tell listeners where they can go to find out more about you, Amir, and about the things that you're doing at Todoist? Sure. So like I have a very active Twitter account. It's Amix, A-M-I-X, 3K. And then we also have a blog where we kind of like share our philosophy and stuff. And, you know, it's very radical. So I would actually recommend uh, checking out that. In, and it's at a uh, blog at doist.com. So that's about it. All right. Thanks a ton for coming on, Amir. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Cordland. And it was amazing to be on the show. And, you know, good luck with everything. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review. If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com review and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there and they really help other people to discover the show. So thanks a ton for your support. In addition, if you are running an internet business or if it's something that you'd like to do in the future, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com forum. It's a great place to get help with pretty much any problem that you might encounter while growing your business, like how to come up with an idea or feedback on a product that you're working on. I try to spend a couple hours a day just answering questions and giving people feedback and getting to know everyone, so I really hope to see you there. That's ndhackers.com forum. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.